Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. As far as I'm concerned, this is the domestic and the finance interview of the day. George Cervellos has been brilliant feeding in all of David Folkert's Landau's research at Deutsche Bank into foreign exchange research. And this morning, an absolutely brilliant tour de force paragraph from Cervellos. Let's go to it right now. And you know this, folks, the real wage, it ain't happening. Real wages at negative 2% are the weakest since 2008. This is very different from the inflationary environment of the 1970s when real wages were growing sharply. This is leading to a very different message. The consumer is deferring as opposed to accelerating consumption like in the 1970s. We're going to try Mr. Saravellis now as we wait for the Secretary of State. George, you're more important than Anthony Blinken, but let's try this uh, as we can. You take a starkly different view on what inflation will do to our economies. Where will we be in April or May? Thank you, Tom. Uh, I think uh, if you look back through various commentary, um, we constantly try to find parallels. Um, is this 2008? Is this 2018? Uh, and I think the reality is this is 2022. And it's just very, very different to anything um, we've seen before. And part of that is the inflation picture uh, you allude to. Uh, and what you're seeing in the US now is pretty remarkable. Uh, US real disposable income is below its pre-COVID trend. So everyone is very focused on these excess savings, but in terms of future expectations for income, um, they're going down. Um, you have a story of supply um, that is frankly terrible. The labor market is shrinking for the first time since World War II, and you exclude durable goods, you haven't had capex. Um, so I take issue with this idea that it's all about strong demand, booming demand, that's why the Fed's hiking. The Fed sure will have to hike, but there's also bad things happening in the background. And I guess the last point to make is, um, if you look at the starting point of inflation, we're talking about a totally different environment to the last 30 years. The last few hiking cycles have always started with inflation at or below target. Um, so this idea that somehow uh, the Fed can maintain easy financial conditions, keep things nice and smooth, that was the policy objective in the last hiking cycles because inflation wasn't as high. And again, this is a very different uh, environment and uh, a very, very unique one, so to speak. Well, George, to that point, there is an idea embedded in your words where the Fed has to tighten policy in order to keep the economy from slowing down more <clears throat> because of this restrictive inflation that you talk about from the negative real wages. Can you talk about how they might try to orchestrate a soft landing or whether you think it's too late? Well, this is really the, the big question. Can the soft landing be orchestrated? And I think that's precisely the worry of 2022. It's going to be the stage of the cycle we're in. Uh, will we be able to stay mid-cycle or are we going into um, a, a more late-cycle environment? Um, I think that the jury is still out. But what we can say for sure, it's just going to be much more challenging than last year, where if you look at real yields, you know they made record lows uh, back in October, November. So this is a very fresh story. I guess the last point to make is, if you look at the fixed income market, yes, we have to reprice more for the Fed in the near term to bring inflation down. But more medium term, the rate market has for six, nine months been giving you this 
message that neutral rates, trend growth uh, has issues. Uh, and uh, I, I think if this continues, what you will see is an aggressively flattening curve. Potentially the curve can invert because essentially the Fed has to hike rates. But the purpose of hiking those rates is to bring long forwards down. It's to bring inflation expectations down. And at the end of the day, that's actually positive for the long end of the fixed income market. So, George, give us a sense of what you would say to people who point to the labor market and say it's incredibly tight. And sure, maybe uh, real wages are negative, but they're going to go up because you're going to see a rolling over in the inflation and you're going to see wages continue to accelerate, as we've seen in some of the earnings reports uh, that have come out so far. What would you respond to that? So I very much agree with the phrase that the labor market is tight. I very much disagree with the phrase that the labor market is strong. Um, the labor market would have been strong if U.S. employment had recovered back to where it was a pre-COVID trend. The Australian labor market is strong. The Canadian labor market is strong. The U.S. market is weak. And that's exactly what is creating this wage pressure. You uh, don't have enough workers coming back in. It's shrinking at the fastest pace in, in many, many decades. And I think that's precisely what's going mm -hmm. to create the issue for the Fed. Um, wages may be going up, but it's, it's essentially for bad reasons. And it ultimately means the speed limit of the economy is slower than what's assumed. If you're joining us on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television, George Cerevelis with us with Deutsche Bank, an important conversation on the state of our economics, finance and investment. John Farrell, Lisa Bramwitz and I await the press conference of the Secretary of State in Geneva after we heard from Mr. Lavrov earlier. George Cerevelis, I want to go all Peter Hooper on you right now. My criticism is a static analysis that's out there right now. You and your team are wonderfully dynamic. Which part of the dynamic continuum of the ISLM structure matters right now? I think for the market at the moment, it's really all about um, the speed of this expected inflation slowdown. If you look at um, current inflation, uh, core PC around 4%, it's expected to go down um, to on, onto a two handle. So any deceleration um, that's not as fast as that will create um, pressure on the Fed. Um, the, the key question really is how that interacts into, into a slowing economy. Um, and again, that has the potential to impact all asset classes, equity markets, of course, the dollar. Uh, but the big question for this year for me is really, are we mid-cycle or are we late cycle? Uh, and I worry we are in, late in a late cycle situation. The end is near. Sounds like Bramo. He does. You know. I'm, I'm loving this. I honestly, I'm sure George, you are. honestly, it's fascinating. And I have to say that it makes a lot of sense and it goes against a narrative that we've heard continually. So thank you. I appreciate it. George Saravelos at Deutsche Bank, making Lisa Abramitz happy this morning. Hey, George, thank you. Just wonderful. Right now, with an extremely sharp note, and as always at Wells Fargo, putting the timeline on it, their senior economist, Sarah House, joins us. Sarah, I want to go to the certitude of March. Let's take it from one Jay Caesar. Beware the rate hikes of March. Are we going to see in the literature this weekend, are we going to see in the work of economists next week, a beginning of an adjustment to what's going to occur in March? 
I think we've already seen it move that way. So both in terms of market pricing, but also I think a, a lot of economists' calls. And I think that'll be the big theme of next week's Fed meeting is what they're doing to, to signal not just the timing of liftoff, but I think increasingly we're going to see more attention and I think really a lot of word parsing in terms of what the pace looks like. So is it going to be roughly that 25 basis points per quarter pace like we saw last cycle, or could we actually see something a little bit more aggressive, whether that's back-to-back meetings um, or potentially, as there's been some rumblings, even a 50 basis point move coming out of the gate? Question I've asked a couple times this week. Let me rephrase it to you. It's simple. Why can't they come out and say, we're in a pandemic, we have massive uncertainty, including the diplomatic events in Geneva, we're going to go 25 beeps and then sit? Why can't they say that? So I think when you step back and you look at the overall state of of the economy, so even as we're in a pandemic, we're still seeing an extraordinarily strong picture. So labor markets are are quite solid right now. So, of course, unemployment already below 4%. And I think when we look at where policy is, it's still exceptionally accommodative. And it's hard to sit when you have 7% CPI numbers. It's it's hard for the Fed to, to stand idly by. The optics on that don't look good. The optics on that don't look good. The reality of it is actually incredibly nuanced, as George Cerevelos of Deutsche Bank, as Tom was mentioning earlier, uh, talked about in his note this morning, this idea that the inflation that we're seeing could be contractionary in its own right, that if the Fed doesn't act, that actually uh, the economy will slow much more than people are certainly expecting later on. How much are you seeing people not spend because they are concerned about how high prices have gone? So I think we've certainly seen that in some of the buying plans for some big ticket purchases. So if you look at the Michigan survey, you've seen the buying plans for homes, autos, large household durables have absolutely cratered. And when you dig into the reasons for that, it's it's not so much households being worried about their home finances. It's just the sheer, uh, it's just the sheer price. And so I think we are seeing this inflation cannibalize some of those sales. And I think it is one of the factors that's leading us to expect a much more more trend-like pace of, of consumer spending this year, which is going to offer some relief on, on the inflation picture. But it's going to be more towards the, the back half of the year. And even then, I think we're still looking at an environment of inflation well above where the Fed wants it to be. And meanwhile, the nature of this uh, inflation is becoming more politically perilous with the lowest income wor- or workers who originally enjoyed the biggest wage gains starting to see uh, theirs fall behind on a percentage basis r- relative to the highest earners. You're seeing, for example, bank employees with massive gains in their salaries. How much does this change the narrative in a significant way and push the Fed to move faster? Because right now we are back in a scenario where the top brackets are are benefiting the most. Right. So I think this is, this is an important element. So we focus a lot on the labor market being broader and more inclusive uh, over the last cycle. But I think when we look at the current environment and the current state of inflation, so grocery store prices rising the most in, in 13 years, same as energy, housing costs, when you factor in those those utilities also up, you know, by the most we've seen since the early 1990s, this disproportionately affects your lower income households. And so I think there there is something 
something to be said for the Fed tackling this in inflation, making sure that it doesn't become in entrenched where they have to tighten policy even further down the road. That actually has disproportionate benefits to lower income households that don't have as much room to, to hedge around these higher prices. They don't have the savings to dip in to the same extent as as higher income households as as well. OK, let's go back to the great John Sylvia, who developed Wells Fargo, and you people have continued it forward, Sarah House. What do real wages do? And I don't mean so much the real wage, but what does the real paycheck do here, the inflation-adjusted paycheck? Right. So in terms of, of real average hourly earnings, so we've seen them turn deeply negative over, over the past year. Now, I think we'll see some improvement in that dynamic as, as the year moves forward. So we're expecting stronger wage growth as we do see the labor market continuing to tighten and businesses have come around to the fact that if they want to attract and retain workers, okay. they have to pay up. That was a lesson that was hard to learn the, the past the past cycle. Okay, but but Sarah, go, go away from hourly wages. You sound like an economist. Sure. Go to somebody that's a house. Somebody's making 140. The other person's making 120 or 90 or 180, whatever. But bundled all in, they're doing a tax form of 150 or 200,000. That's not an average hourly wage, but they're getting clobbered by inflation. Are they going to be able to keep up that upper middle class household that everyone aspires to? Are they going to be able to keep up in the next 24 months? I don't see it. I think the picture is actually going to look better when we talk about some of these stronger wage gains, not just in those lower income, high contact service sectors like leisure and hospitality that we've seen as we do see wage pressures filter up into to higher paying brackets as, as well. And then the fact that we are expecting inflation to recede over the course of that year. So that balance is going to get a little bit better. And I think when we talk about overall household income, we have to remember that we're also adding a lot of jobs this year. And so that's going to help in terms of that aggregate wage and salary income that's going to help offset some of the this these inflationary pressures that that households are seeing is is as we see more people step back into the labor market and you go back to more two-income households. Sarah, before we let you go, the Fed is increasingly moving to a data dependency, as they keep saying, and as a lot of people in the market seem to believe. Uh, the question is, which data? So what is the most important data that you're watching in the weeks and months to come? I think near term, it, it boils down to inflation. So we are under the assumption that employment's going to hit near pocket here in, in January and February with Omicron staffing absence, uh, absences, difficulty staffing up and, and bringing on new workers. But I think it really comes down to uh, how quickly or whether at all we do see those inflation pressures begin to recede. So we expect inflation on a year over year basis to top out here in the first quarter. But on a monthly basis, we're, we're still going to be seeing some pretty strong gains here in the near term. And so I think it's a matter of, of how much some of those monthly gains come down. If we're still seeing, you know, uh, three tenths, four tenths of percent monthly increases, I think that's still going to keep the, the pressure very much on the Fed to um, signal that they are, are closely trying, closely tracking inflation and, and trying to rein that in before it becomes too entrenched. Sarah House of Wells Fargo. Sarah, thank you. Nadia Lovell joins us right now, senior U.S. equity strategist at an optimistic UBS. Nadia, frame what you have changed in the first 21 days of January. How have you amended and adjusted the UBS view? You know, we haven't changed our view much. Clearly, the market has had a choppy start to the year, but it does feel like most of the 
selling might be behind us. We're approaching some key technical support level on the S&P 500. And that would suggest that the market is near oversold territory. So we are looking forward for this narrative to change and some stability in the market going forward. I think that uh, investors have become somewhat spoiled in the last couple of years of not seeing any sort of pullback to this magnitude. Usually you see a couple of these 5% pullbacks. So we, we're starting to see that market approach that oversell territory and really opportunity to start thinking about buying those dips. And Nadia, you've heard these phrases in the past, don't catch a falling knife. I remember covering the European debt crisis a decade ago, I was told, don't put your hand in a food blender. When it feels uncomfortable, that's when you should buy. How uncomfortable is it now? You said buy the dip on the S&P. Would you buy the dip on this NASDAQ 100? Uh, we have been somewhat neutral on tech for some time. We do think that tech will continue to place some pressure from rising interest rates and uh, those valuation needs to come in a little bit more. There are areas of tech, though, that we do like and we'll use the opportunity that's happening that is sort of indiscriminate selling to build opportunity, uh, a position over the long term, particularly in areas like artificial intelligence, big data, uh, cybersecurity. So there's some opportunity here to build position in high quality names with sustainable business models. Do you think that the market's gotten ahead of itself with Fed expectations? Oh, we, we do. We do think so in terms of our base case is that we expect three rate heights this year, starting in March, followed by June and September. We're looking for balance sheet roll, uh, runoff to start later this year. I mean, what's driving our view is that we continue to believe that inflation will meaningfully moderate as the year progresses. We're looking for under 2 percent by the end of the year. And we think that will alleviate some of the pressure on the Fed to be more aggressive uh, and it's need to bring back monetary policy to neutral. The reason why I ask is because you expect or you call for your, your, your firm calls for three rate hikes this year versus the four that are baked into market expectations. And I wonder at what point you start to see uh, tech becoming a buy. You were just talking about how you're not there yet. It's neutral. But what is the tipping point for you to say, OK, now is the time to really go overweight and to go all in? I think you, what you need to see is, one, we'll be watching the earnings season very closely. And so, you know, if the tech companies can put up good numbers, which traditionally they have been able to do so, I think if you get another, you know, 5% or so pullback here in tech, it becomes a little bit more attractive. But right now, we are really focusing on taking advantage of value. We think that value continues to be well positioned particularly as rates move higher, financials. We also are looking at energy, given that the continued um, upward pressure that we have seen on oil prices, and we think that oil prices were stabilized at a higher level. And so we think that energy is also some of the best <clears throat> opportunities right now in the market. Nadja, I am, and this is my own bias, folks, full disclosure. I'm absolutely fascinated at the comparison of Microsoft using spare change to go after Activision versus the travails of Netflix. I don't I want to do individual stock here, but what's the value of profit right now? What is the value of free cash flow right now? You know, having good profit growth and also having a strong balance sheet and free cash flow can be a very powerful currency in this market. As you're seeing valuation pull in and some of these uh, tech companies, it is providing opportunities for pick up an M&A, which is already playing out um, early in the year. And so we do think that that is very valuable. A lot of these tech companies, uh, large tech companies are flush for cash, and we wouldn't be surprised to see even more M&A activity later this year. And Nadia, how does the international story stack up now versus the US. I've heard so many people throw around names like Japan, maybe take a look at China as they start to ease. How do they stack up against the US at the moment? 
Yeah, we 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 do we do um, have a preference to the U.S. I mean, in terms of looking overseas, like your your zone looks interesting. Um, uh, China, we're still neutral on, on China, but the market has re-rated downward quite a bit over the last year, and there might be some opportunities there in in, in coming weeks around around China. But right now, we are neutral on China. Nadia Lovell of UBS. Nadia, thank you. Our goal is to bring you experts, people with zero BS about the things at the moment. And we've hit a home run out of the park here over the uh, Massachusetts Turnpike with Tina Fordham, head of global political strategy at Avonhurst, with her academics at Columbia and far more her ability to traipse across the Atlantic like no one I know. Tina, thrilled to have you on at this historic moment. Secretary Blinken's family is steeped in Eastern Europe steeped in this fractious relationship between Russia and the West. I featured the John Mearsheimer real politic moments ago, the idea that NATO is overreached. How does the president of the United States react to Mr. Putin's belief that we have overreached? President needs to hold the line and Secretary Blinken, um, as you said, with his family history in Eastern Europe, just like Angela Merkel, uh, the former German chancellor knows that you cannot show weakness to, to Vladimir Putin. Um, blurring the red lines, dividing the West and NATO is part of what's happening here. How do we show strength away from sanctions? What are the avenues we have east of Kiev? Well, whilst we've all been busy with COVID, uh, fighting COVID and, and everything else, um, Russia has been able to make significant inroads in destabilizing um, its uh, former, um, former satellite states, uh, Lithuania, for example, um, Belarus with the, with the protests and the support that's come from Moscow, also support from, from Moscow to, to some current EU member states. Um, that is why, to those who ask, you know, why now, I would say we've got U.S. midterms in November, as, as, uh, as all Americans know. We've got a new government in Germany. We have the U.K. focused on its own troubles. If there was ever a time to test the resolve of, of Europe and the United States when it comes to enforcing borders and, uh, and other measures, now is that time. I think the question that, you know, to refer back to, to what you're saying is whether the sanctions that have been suggested, these massive sanctions, the sanctions from hell, are going to be enough to deter Putin, who might be thinking um, that uh, we, we won't be willing to do the big stuff, like take, uh, you know, sanction Russia against Swift, for example. Tina, there may be other lessons, though, that we can take from some of these meetings, in particular the relationship between the United States and the European Union. Is it significant that uh, Antony Blinken went first to meet with Olaf Scholz and that he really emphasized everything that he said, we will work with our allies, we have decided on a plan, this is ours. Is that notable and, a, frankly, a notable departure from the previous administration and enough to create a strong coalition? 
Well, you're right that it's, um, you know, making more of an effort, more of an effort coming from Washington than usual. But I can tell you that when those U.S.-Russia bilateral meetings were announced in, in for Geneva, the Europeans were, were very concerned about decisions being taken about Europe without Europe in the room. Since then, uh, Tony Blinken has been at pains to emphasize the importance. But, you know, speaking to you from, from here in, in London, um, there is a, a lot, plenty of reason to be concerned that the f failure of this diplomatic initiative is going to lead to um, a serious gas price crunch uh, in, in Europe, um, or a gas supply crunch rather, and, and a price hike. And of course, Ukraine is also important as an agricultural producer. So we feel the effects here in a way that is perhaps more realpolitik for the United States. Tina, if you were advising big multinational companies about how to prepare for some sort of escalation here, what would you say, what mindset should they get in as they prepare for either sanctions or even some military altercation? Well, I do advise big multinational companies and institutional in investors. That's exactly what I what I do as the chief global political strategist. And one of the things that I have emphasized in my methodology is that we cannot treat these types of events as tail risks. Um, nobody needs a geopolitical analyst who cries wolf all the time. And so, as a long-standing Russia watcher, you know, <coughs> I'm saying now um, that this conflict. Uh, is is entering very serious territory. You need to stress test against, um, uh, you know, waking up to a headline that says Russia has crossed the border into Ukraine. Now, in addition to that, there are some perhaps less destabilizing but still concerning possibilities. For example, a de facto or a soft annexation of parts of Ukrainian territory. And let's remember we've got troops, uh, Russian troops now stationed in Belarus, in addition to those amassed right. on, the, on the border with Ukraine. Tina, Peter the Great, I know you know this, served for 42 years. I should say reigned for 42 years. Mr. Putin is catching up uh, very quickly. Let's look at Putin the Great in the heart of the matter, which is the Russian people have always projected south to the waters. They need a navy. It's been that way forever and ever. Explain to us Mr. Putin's feelings of Ukraine as an avenue to Crimea, as an avenue to the Black Sea, and how the U.S. Navy and NATO should respond? Well, you, you know, you, I, I love what you're saying. I lived in St. Petersburg uh, for, for a time in, uh, you know, a million years ago in my student days. Um, it it uh, uh, was um, frozen. So for, you know, half the year and so didn't have direct access to the water. Uh, the Russian Empire, of course, came before the Soviet Union. Having those, um, those channels has, has always been important. Putin does see himself uh, very much in, in uh, one of Russia's great leaders um, alongside the czars. He's written extensively about this. Um, but if we take what's happened in Kazakhstan, for example, uh, in, in context, Putin's dream of having uh, kind of safe pro-Russian buffer states all along the border is starting to crack. Um, the Mearsheimer quote that you put up, you know, interested me very much, of course, um, you know, one of the most important professors of international affairs and, and leaders on this. What Mearsheimer says that perhaps NATO has overreached is echoed by a lot of the investors I talk to. Why are we doing this? Why are we, you know, poking the bear? Here's where we bring in U.S. diplomatic history um, that says the United States can't allow 
any regional hegemons. And that's where what happens in Ukraine is watched very closely in China and by Taiwan, right? Because both China have a big thing in common, and that is wanting to, to, uh, to be the regional hegemons without risking US or Western military blowback. And of course, that worries all of the smaller countries around them. So will the US be able to maintain its global position? That's what's at stake right now in Ukraine. And that's what Secretary Blinken is going to be trying to, um, to project. Tina, thank you. I think that final point is so, so important. Tina Fordham there of Avonhurst. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.